I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. On today's episode of Design to Heal, Dr. Ben, I am super excited. Um, you got me hooked on The Social Dilemma. We talked about that about a month ago or several Probably weeks ago. Probably a bad choice of words. We got you hooked on The Social Dilemma. This is, <laughs> there you this go. is the problem. We got a, a specialist in addiction today. We probably got to be careful of He's the words we use. already calling me out. We're not even yeah. 10 seconds into the show. I've already been called out, but you know what? For good reason. <laughs> Touche. Okay. And so in watching the, uh, literally in watching this documentary on Netflix the other night with my wife, I, I'm five minutes into this and I start writing down names. I'm seeing contributors going, it's kind of how we roll around here. You know, we meet people that are kind of like, we have different kind of heroes than I think are most. You know, the people that are the movers and shakers in the world that are that are, uh, that are are standing up and sort of <laughs> the revolutionaries, if you will. And uh, one of those was Dr. Anna Lemke. And uh, Dr. Anna is the um, the medical director of addiction medicine, medicine at Stanford University, was a contributor in Social Dilemma. And uh, we have her on the line today. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's get to let's get right away to, to you and kind of your biography and everything. You're in psychiatry, right? Um, ben pointed out to me that you were in the documentary Medicating Normal already. So he, I think he likes you already for a lot of good reasons. <laughs> I, I don't suspect there's too many in your world that kind of took that path and are, and are maybe sort of cutting against the grain a bit, you know, in, in, in both uh, the world of psychiatry, but also your contributions in Social Dilemma. So if you could share with the listeners just a little bit, do a better job on the biography than I did. I know I could hardly do it justice, but we'd love to hear about you as we get started here. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. Um, you know, when I went to medical school, I went to Stanford Medical School also, and I was really um, intrigued by improving not just quantity of life, but also quality of life. And what it really came down to for me was really trying to think about ways to improve the time that every living human has on this earth, not necessarily trying to, you know, extend life. To me, that didn't seem as important. And so I was really drawn to psychiatry for that reason. But I was a medical student and a resident in the 1990s, and that was the decade of the brain. So that was an era when psychiatry was really revolutionized by pharmaceuticals. It was a time when we were going to move out of a kind of quackery that we were practicing based on talk therapy and into the golden age of psychiatry where we were going to we were going to use chemicals you know ma namely pharmaceutical drugs to change the chemistry of the brain to heal mental illness and really any other emotional problem and it was very sexy and it was very appealing and for the first time like psychiatrists had cachet in medicine we were definitely the Cinderella outsiders of medicine we didn't have real interventions. We didn't have real tests. We didn't have real, you know, drugs. And all of a sudden we had drugs, Prozac, Paxil. Um, we had Haldol. We had Valium. We had Ativan. We had Clonopin. Um, so this was really the era when these drugs were going to just change and improve everybody's life. But I have to say, even in medical school and residency, I was skeptical. 
because I would watch my mentors, my attendings, treat a patient who would come in and say, you know, I'm absolutely devastated. My father just died. And I would think to myself, oh, my gosh, you know, here's here's this moment where we can witness this person's journey of grieving and really sit with them and empathize and carry them through this. And instead, you know, my attending would be like, we have a pill for that. And so it would be this like prescribing for more and more conditions that really struck me as entirely within the range of normal human suffering. And this just got worse and worse and worse through the 90s, through the early aughts. Doc, were you were you rare then? I'm just curious, you know, um, even in, in my profession as a chiropractor, I'm a little I, I, even in that kind of, you know, outsider already. I'm a little bit even outside of that. So you're here with your other residents and your friends and your classmates and, you know, you're doing this. Were other people or is there just are you already a questioner? I mean, is that part of your life? It just didn't feel right, you know, I mean, because there's a lot of people that stood right next to you that said, okay, awesome, right? Let's give them the, the pro. <laughs> and I, I don't mean, you know, I, I mean that, you know, yeah. nicely, you yeah. know, I mean, because there's still no. something different yeah. about you, you know, yeah. for better or worse, yeah. right? You know, what's really interesting, I didn't realize this about myself, but I do realize it now that I'm in my 50s, that I am a natural contrarian. So if everybody's going right, I kind of want to go left. You play it off so well. You seem so sweet and, and nice, but right inside you is that... Uh, See, can you teach Ben? Ben's that as well, so he yeah. needs to learn some, yeah. some demeanor. I lessons. wear mine on my sleeve. Sorry, Doc. So, yeah. Right. Well, you're a lot more insightful probably than I am because you've probably known all along. I, I was sort of discovered that about myself, and one of the ways I discovered it was actually through parenting because I have mm. one child in particular who's like, if we said yes, that meant no. If we said no, that meant yes. I mean, and everything was like that. And I was like, God, where does he get that from? <laughs> kind of, that's kind of from me. Um, so, no, I think you're absolutely right. There is this kind of innate skepticism okay. or kind of a question. That, that's always been there. Okay. Sure. Okay. Sorry so, to jump so in. So you're in the yeah. 90s. No, I'm glad you jumped in because I, I tend to like run on and on. No, and I'm so no, happy no. when people jump in because it's like they don't want to hear the long version. Just keep, keep but, me But to the I short. do. I want to hear the rest of what you were saying because here you, you talked about the golden age of sort of psychiatry and everything where yeah. we've got a pill for all of this stuff and now you're going, but wait a second. So, well, the so, perceived golden age, right? I mean, it was sold right, as that. Right. Like the perceived opioid, you know, we're right. going to just help everybody not have pain anymore or isn't that right. good yeah. and then we yeah. step back a few years or decades later and go whoa time out yeah what yeah. if we what what happened here yeah, yeah. yeah. so continue that yeah. story you're, please you're right it was supposed to be the golden age right. and it turned out to be not that yeah so so where were you in that time as you were sort of questioning the model and sort of what was being yeah. sold like how did that lead what's the next part of that evolution for you well, it was a very interesting convergence that as I began to lose faith in psychotropics and pharmacotherapy, as I saw them being overused for every type of human suffering, I sort of on the side discovered addiction medicine. And addiction medicine was this real outlier in psychiatry. First of all, nobody wanted to treat people with addiction. That was like the, the least sexy, appealing branch <laughs> of psychiatry that people could do. You know, it was like, that's not a real mental illness. They never get better. That's a willpower problem. Those people are icky. Um, mm. But what, what drew me to treating people with addiction, interestingly, at that point, was the lack of pills to treat addiction. Mm emphasis on spiritual pathways. 
So what I found in that was something that I had really thought I would find in general mainstream psychiatry, but that was going away. And yet here was this whole branch of medicine, and especially psychiatry, addiction medicine, that still really talked about and actively advocated for kind of a spiritual transformation or... 12 Steps other... as an oversimplification, right? Still this yeah. appreciation yes. for a higher... Yes, yeah. but, but even not necessarily 12 Steps, yeah. just this sense of like... Acknowledgement of that. Yeah, and like a deep humility in the face of what how frail we all are, what we are all are ultimately capable of in terms of both how far we can fall and how, how much we can bring ourselves mm. up again and how the human spirit is the source of that strength and our, our ability as healers. And I think this was particularly important for me in my professional life that my, that I, my relationship with the patient has a powerful healing capacity. And I can harness that to help my patients. I don't need to prescribe them a pill. I am enough and they are enough. And together we can create something that can really rise above. So when you and started so doing this, I ha I'm just having to imagine. Again, you know, as the out quote outside, you know, the chiropractor, I was, I'm weird before I get in the room, right? But you got their <laughs> credentials. And so you've got, they've got one of their own starting to ask some questions that are a little uncomfortable, right? You yeah. know, where you just, mm -hmm. you know, just voicing probably in a very gentle and, 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 and honest way, right? Just this idea, mm -hmm. hey, can we do better? It's like when I see a patient in, in pain and I, you know, I generally leap towards lifestyle, right? What's your environment? I was watching a video you had done, right? This appreciation for environment, not just our, our global environment, right? But our internal, what are we eating? What are we, how are we moving? All of sleeping relationships mm -hmm. and appreciation for that. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you think, hey, doesn't everybody think like this? I'm going to be it's so well received when I start saying, hey, guys, we can <laughs> we can do better. There's a way to do this maybe without a pill or push. How did when you started to maybe share? And again, we haven't talked about this, so I don't want to put you on the spot. But, you know, was it not maybe very well received or are you just such a brilliant articulator that they <laughs> said, oh, thank you, Dr. Anna. This is wonderful. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. How did that go for you when you kind of came out of the metaphorical closet, if you will? Well, there have been a lot of good things that have happened. For example, my message has found people, you know, for whom it's really resonated and been like, you know, just a, just a tall glass of cool water on a hot day. Like, oh my goodness, thank, thank goodness yeah. I'm not the only one. But, but also there have been a lot of negative repercussions in my professional life. I've gotten hate mail, I've gotten hate comments on social media, which I, I'm really not on social media, so that's the way I avoid that. I've had some professional repercussions, people who don't talk to me or have distanced themselves from me. Are you so, supported at your, your current? I mean, obviously, Stanford's a big deal, and if you can't talk about it, I understand. But you know, even like Jeff was saying earlier, you're in kind of tech hub, and here you are in a social media movie. And you know, even I'm imagining, you know, obviously a huge medical school there, and speaking things that... You know, I appreciate this about you, and I don't, again, to, not to put words in your mouth, but I was watching you on some of the opioid stuff, right? And you were doing an interview, and uh, the person interviewing you said, you know, was asking about opioids, and you said, well, here's the deal. I went to the research, and there was no research to validate <laughs> chronic pain use of opioids. So I, I, might, I don't want to, you'd probably say, well, no, I just looked at the evidence, 
right? It's not like you come to these conclusions on your own, just, oh, well, I think this feels right. You, you, there's evidence to support your station. But then it does beg the question, and I'm just saying this, then are the other people not really using evidence? Which I think is a question we need to ask. And I don't know if, you know, where you would, where you'd go with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would I even take it a step further because it has become such a moral issue. Mm. I say to people, like, I would be the first person to prescribe opioids for chronic pain if they actually helped people. You know, it's not that I have a moral objection to opioids or any other type of medicine, but let's look at it pragmatically. What what do they actually do for people? And not just in the short term, but also in the long term. We have to look at the long term when we're dealing with chronic relapsing and remitting illnesses, which chronic pain is and which most mental illnesses are. I, I don't judge people for that because we're all susceptible to influences that have nothing to do with science, even when we think they do. The pharmaceutical industry, industry was really instrumental in adulterating the scientific evidence and presenting to physicians what looked a whole lot like science and wasn't science at all regarding the efficacy and safety of opioids and the use of chronic pain. So it, it's not like about, like, I got it right and you messed up. And as like an institution, we messed up, but we can correct it. We don't have to keep going in this direction. I mean, again, we're all fallible. And when we recognize our mistakes, we can come together and say, whoops, you know, made a mistake. Let's, let's unwind this. Hey, Doc, if we could, let's let's jump in now to uh, Social Dilemma. And, you know, you're you're already asking questions. You said I love the word contrarian in, in your own field and everything. Can, can you tell the audience kind of what led you to get involved in that project and how you were approached and all that kind of stuff? How did that look? Well, um, I had done some early writing and speaking on technology addiction, device addiction. Starting in the early 2000s, I started to see a lot more of those addictions presenting in clinic. I had done something for NPR. And so the makers of The Social Dilemma reached out to me to ask me if, if I would be interviewed for the documentary, speaking specifically about what our engagement with technology does to the brain. So what impact it has on the brain. And as I said in the documentary, it is essentially a drug. It's a high-potency drug. It acts on the brain in a way that's very similar to the way that cocaine or alcohol. So I was happy to do that for them. And then after they interviewed me, um, they came back about six months later because I had talked a little bit about my kids and my own struggles as a parent and how to police media in our own home and the path that we had taken in our family. And they said, can we interview your kids? So they came back and they interviewed our kids and then Lo and behold, it came out, and there I was, and there were my kids, and and that's that's the story. Doc, do you, you know, and here's why, <laughs> you know, and I mean this uh, nicely. I, I the the pastor that I've known for a long time, he has this way of talking, and he's saying really intense things, but really nicely. And I think like <laughs> I think he's I think. I think he's slapping me right now, but I like feel like he's giving me a hug, you know. And and I and I say this because you what you just said is not light words. When you are comparing this technology to cocaine and, and you're not, you know, you're not throwing those around frivolously or as an extreme metaphor to make a point. You're saying neurologically speaking in my expertise in brain for X amount of years and my patient, my work with patients, I'm very, and as a mom, I'm very concerned. And so here's where, where I sit sometimes is 
you know, we need to take it that serious, right? I mean, I don't, I say sometimes there's no safe distance from a tornado, right? Like, I don't know. I was even reading, I'd love you to talk about your new book, Dopamine Nation, that you have coming out. And I just read the, you know, the bio or the summary of it. And, you know, there's this part in there as I was reading it, literally, I get stressed reading it, right? Because of all the stressors. No, you know, but all the, you know, texting and Facebook and all the stuff that Onslaught ourselves and our kiddos go through today, it's hard to, to not just say, this is garbage and I have to disengage. After I watched The Social Dilemma, the next morning, you're laugh at this. So my daughter's 13. She watched it with us. She goes, I said, what do you think, Grace? She goes, oh, great. Now I'll never get a phone, right? <laughs> and, her. And, then, and then my, uh, and my, but I got up the next morning and I, and I got, and I, I got, I closed my Facebook and I closed my Instagram and I haven't been on social media since. And, and, um, and I'm blaming you. No, just kidding. Right. But, Good. but I yeah, so yeah, well, so, <laughs> but this awesome. is, this is my point. You know, you would, again, not to put words in your mouth, you would probably never give a person with chronic pain opioids. You'd say there's a better way, right. Or, yes. you know, or, or you would really do everything you could under the sun to not have that happen. And you found a way. I have some friends, people that, you know, in the, in the medicating normal world, Dr. Mary Veaton is one of them. Right. And she has a way of treating people that really last resort is medications. Right. If, if at all. And, you know, she's a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, but still. Right. So I sit there and I think to myself, you know, what's your, after knowing all that, you know, you know, what is your, your take on that to our parents that are listening, right. Or just me and Jeff and you as a parent, is it really, do you really say, Hey, you guys, I want you to know how dangerous it is and be really, really careful with this, with your kids. It is like a drug. And I don't mean like a metaphor. I do not think it's an exaggeration to say that we will look back 50, a hundred years hence at the time we're living in now and just be horrified by the way that we interacted with our phones. Kind of the way we look back now on the, on the way people used to smoke cigarettes mm-hmm. in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, medical doctors used to sure. yeah. prescribe to their patients that they smoke cigarettes to calm their nerves. I really think that the smartphone in particular has become the modern-day cigarette, and we will be shocked to look back and think about how we let our kids use these devices. So neurologically, what does, if you were going to, you know, to the non, you know, psychiatrist, Stanford, you know, super brain, how, like to the lay mom or dad, why is it, what are the two or three most dangerous things about it? Right. You know, Mm. you know, cocaine can blow my heart up or, you know, or I mean, some of the things it does, like, what is it about this that concerns you so much neurologically or, or whatever, whatever the right word is? It's a good question. Right. Hmm. Well, I think the best way to communicate the dangers is to convey the basic neuroscience of addiction. And what I do in my book, Dopamine Nation, is I really map out exactly what happens in the brain's reward pathway when we engage with any addictive drug, whether it's our smartphones, potato chips, cannabis, alcohol, whatever it is. And the key thing to understand is that any substance that is addictive releases a lot of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, and it's the most important neurotransmitter when it comes to experiencing pleasure, motivation, and reward. We have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasurable stimuli and recoil from painful ones. So that makes sense, right? That that was what made it possible to survive in the savanna. 
But now we're living in a time of overwhelming abundance. We're surrounded by these super high-potency dopamine stimuli. And our major task for modernity has really become how to figure out how not to ingest Mm, that And here's why this excessive dopamine engagement is so dangerous. Because when we're ingesting a drug or when we're engaging in the addictive behaviors online, so not everything online is bad, obviously, but when we're doing pornography or playing, you know, a lot of video games or totally engrossed in the echo chamber of social media, what's happening is that we're telling our brain, you know what, I'm getting all of this dopamine from the outside. So I don't need to make my own. So the brain adjusts Mm. and downregulates its own dopamine production, its own dopamine receptors, and its own dopamine factory kind of shuts down. Just like an SSRI can mess up, you know, uh, the body's ability to to make it. Yeah, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Causes a chemical imbalance. Does it fix one? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the result is that I've now changed my pleasure pain set point. Mm. And when I'm not engaging in that activity, everything else is kind of boring or I'm a little bit depressed. Mm. So I've kind of induced this depressive state where life has sort of lost its color. The only thing that makes me feel happy or even just normal is re-engagement with my drug. And and that is the vicious Mm. cycle people need to understand. These are not just benign things. These change our pleasure set point such such that we essentially induce a clinical depression. And to reverse Mm. that, have to limit our engagement and reset our reward. Doc, patterns. that is, I, I don't know. Maybe you've said that many times, but I just like that three minutes could change the world. I agree. Like that, that analysis of that, because, you know, I, the one I think about a lot in my world is I you know, meet with a lot of parents with kiddos that are struggling, right? And and you'll often hear this, it, much like social media say, but my kids just won't eat anything healthy. And I'm like, well, that's partly because they, all they know is Coke and Doritos and, you know, gummy bears. And so if that's all I had, the other you know, carrot seems pretty boring. But right. at some point, <laughs> right, but because we've messed up our pleasure centers or I think it's in, I don't remember if it's in, I recently read Glow Kids, that book Glow Kids that, you know, it's a few years old, but I believe if I'm remembering this right, it was talking about Steve Jobs at the beginning was a, a very big supporter of in-school in school technology. And I guess over the years changed his tone on that. Of course, personally, we've heard the stories with his family. He maybe limited that, but he basically they said, you know, we say kids have these short attention spans and this, in this book, at least in Glow Kids, it was saying, well, we have to say we've actually created that, right? You know, we, we often are, are blaming that symptom of that instead of of what maybe caused that and so i i just you know for parents or all of us just to have an appreciation for that i think is so powerful and i think you know i was telling jeff earlier you know sometimes the solution is although it's a complicated issue right i like opioids and chronic pain is very complicated lots of variables in there but in in an essence it's very simple in that you have a human hurting in front of you right? Uh, you know, this technology in a sense is very complicated, all the forces behind it and market forces, but it also is kind of easy, not easy. The solution, what we need to do is fairly easy, disengage from it, right? Doesn't mean it's easy, meaning, you know, like the repercussions of addiction and, and maybe you could give us, and I think we have to take a break, Jeff, but, yeah, just but maybe it. after break, we could talk about what are some I don't want you doctoring over the airwaves, of course, doc, you know, right. But from a, just a kind of a low level 
um, addiction that maybe many of us have. You know, we're not clinically depressed. We don't maybe need to go to inpatient, but we're starting to have those emotions of when I put my phone down, I need to check it every 30 seconds or I'm feeling the phantom buzz in my leg or, you know, whatever that is. (laughs) You know, would you be comfortable sharing some insights for us with that? Sure. Okay. Cool. Let's get to the break here. And frankly, I don't think she's going to have a problem doing doctoring over the airwaves. She already got you off the social media and, and was proud <laughs> yeah. to take the blame for that. So like, just think of the power of, of the audience here and some of this good stuff. I have some questions of my own actually concerning guys like Philip Zimbardo, who is, was one of your colleagues, at least at Stanford. we got yeah. some things coming. So great things coming after the break. Let's give the listeners a breather you are listening to Design to Heal. Here we are back with Design to Heal, having an incredible conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke of Stanford University, uh, contributor to the Social Dilemma Netflix documentary. Um, I know you got questions, so I'm not going to hold you back, man. You jump right in or... Uh well, or, or, so, or give me. Well, so, well pardon <laughs> yeah. me. I'm a, I'm a dad. I've got two kids, 13 and 11, and we've we've tried to be very intentional about the social media uh, use and, and even technology. Not perfect, but certainly more on my radar. Now, I'm in that generation that I feel blessed, and maybe you did, Doc, maybe you got a couple of years on me, but I didn't grow up with it, right? I mean, we rode bikes, and we got played in the dirt. It just wasn't there to really be something I had to resist. I think if I would have been in that time, I would have been sucked in like you see so many people doing. So in general counsel now, cause again, there's the extreme stuff, right? I mean, people that are deep in that they are locked into video games, literally they lose touch with reality, right? That's real, but that's not what I'm talking about today, mm-hmm. right? That is, you know, they need to seek professional, you know, help obviously, right. And, and have people walk them through that. But for Joe Average, that's on our phone, right? You hear those statistics, it's heartbreaking, right? Hours a day, seeing the usage, getting our kids to put it down at the dinner table or walking into the room at 10 o'clock at night and finding your kid stole the phone from the counter. You know, what do you, is there general advice that you find helps rest our brains, break that cycle of of addiction or, or semi-addiction or mild? I don't know what the best clinical words are for it, but what do you say to the Joe average public in its use of technology and, um, you know, social media? Well, I think for families, the most important thing first is to really just come together and start an open discussion about the role that these devices and social media, what, how, what role they play in our lives. I think that many of us, if not most of us, have integrated these devices and this technology in a kind of um, indiscriminate way. Mm. And I think now we're seeing the dark side and we really need to um, reflect on that. You know, it's not that it's all bad, but there is this problem of compulsive over-engagement that I think we all struggle with, really. Um, and, And you don't have to be somebody who has an addictive personality or who struggles with some other addiction to be really beginning to wonder about your relationship with your phone. Um, and the device so think- is set up to addict. I mean, again, I don't want to be told, you know, it's like, I love throwing big pharma under the bus, right? That's easy to do. So it's like easy to throw big tech under the bus or something, right? Yeah. We do have a personal responsibility with this, so we can't just blame it. But it is it fair to say that the technology, one of the interviews I saw with you, Doc, talking about um, some benzos and stuff like that, right? Just the act of engaging them puts you at risk for addiction because of the nature of the drug or the nature of the phone. So is that fair to say? I mean, we need to have a respect for a device. And just because we think we can handle it, 
doesn't mean we can. There's, there's things behind that technology that we don't even understand that can lead. It's, you're going to have that pleasure dopamine hit whether you don't want to or not, right? right. Yeah. Yes, and I think that that needs to be top of mind in discussing this with our family members, with our children, is really acknowledging that it is a drug and it was designed to be addictive. You know, the bottomless bowls, the lights, the bells, the whistles, um, you know, the alerts, the the sort of promise of ever greater rewards with ongoing engagement. I mean, all of that is designed to keep us clicking, swiping, and tapping. So I think we have to acknowledge that. And then think about how we would want anything that's addictive to be integrated into our lives. Well, if someone got up and had like, you know, whiskey for breakfast, I think most of us would say, gee, that, there's something wrong with that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But if they had a, one cocktail with dinner, that would be like, you know, depending upon, yeah. obviously if you're Mormon or something, no, that wouldn't be okay. But, you know, most cultures of that's okay. So we have to start talking amongst ourselves to establish new norms about what's okay and what's not okay. And to really recognize that this is a drug. It's an addictive drug. It was designed to be addictive and that we are all a little bit addicted. And one way to do that just as a practical experiment in your life is to put the phone away for 24 hours. Now, 24 hours is not enough to reset your brain's reward pathways, but it is enough to experience real withdrawal. Mm. And with that withdrawal, gain insight around just how addicted we really are. And just notice all, uh, you could count on a piece of paper the number of times the thought intrudes on your consciousness of my, my, my phone. Where's my phone? I got to check my phone. Oh, I really need to check it because someone might be in danger or somebody might really need me from work or all of the rationalizations that even though you committed to 24 hours of not looking at your phone, now your brain is rationalizing all the ways you really need to check your phone and not Mm. stick to that 24 hours because that is exactly what happens when people are addicted to any drug. There are so many reasons why they need to reach for their drug again. But as you go through that 24 hours, what you'll find is that as time goes on, those thoughts become less and less and less. Mm. And all of a sudden, you might find yourself having gone like a whole hour without <laughs> the mental construct of your phone. Where, where's my? I always know where my phone is, right? It's in my pocket. It's in my bag. It's in the other room. Yeah. When was the last time I checked it? I'm in the middle of doing a hard problem. I get frustrated or bored. Oh, mm. I'm going to check my phone. Mm. So also not just the addictive potential, but the way in which we've all lost our capacity for frustration, Mm. right? The moment I get frustrated or bored or annoyed, check my phone, check my phone. Take a hit, right? Yeah, maybe something good is going to come through. Maybe someone will like something on social media or I get an email with good news or, you know, maybe I can just go on a news news site and find people who agree with how angry I am at this or that politician. So these are all, you know, the awareness of that and just how much of our mental infrastructure is completely taken over by the phone, I think is really key to beginning to create solutions. Dr. Lemke, one of your, um, I, I, I assume colleagues, you'll have to tell me the nature of the work relationship because uh, I mean, Dr. Philip Zimbardo is a emeritus professor at Stanford and his uh, TED Talk, The Demise of Guys, is just fantastic and deals with now speaking as a guy who does marriage work um 
that talk was about this phenomena that we're seeing now as a result of of dopamine and the burst that dopamine uh, the, sorry the burst of dopamine that one gets from using things like pornography and he was essentially talking about how we have um, young men 20s and 30s now who are experiencing things like erectile dis- uh, dysfunction in lovemaking with a committed partner that they do not experience when using porn um, argument being that the novelty of porn and the dopamine burst that comes from that new different whatever thing uh, it becomes their addiction and they can no longer sustain, say, the serotonin and normal sustained release of dopamine that would happen in lovemaking with with a wife or committed partner or, or whatever, that kind of thing. I, I, I am especially moved by the power of that argument. And so when I look at dopamine, I'm going, but, you know, because I see I see the power of that kind of addiction for people, whether it's porn or, or whatever. And I'm going, man, these we need to look at these things as you know, they often say that porn is the new drug. And it's hard to not hear that and know what dopamine's doing and not saying, man, these phones and not affirm the things that you've been saying as well. What's, are you aware of Dr. Zimbardo's research on that subject? Have you seen the, the TED Talk and any commentary on that that you might offer? So I know of Dr. Zimbardo's work, but not that TED Talk. Um, but certainly, you know, his highlighting the destructive potential of over-engagement with pornography is something that I think is very important. I see pornography addictions increasingly in my clinical work, primarily among middle-aged men. And the smartphone was really, um, you know, the tipping point for so many people. My book, Dopamine Nation, which is coming out next year, um, really highlights pornography addiction um, as one of the main problems that we're facing. So I absolutely agree. I mean, it's what's essential and what I really try to convey in my book is that the brain infrastructure on which these different drugs act is the same and their impact on the brain is the same, whether it's pornography or your smartphone or potato chips. So once you understand the basic neuroscience of addiction, it will give you a kind of framework and awareness that will open your eyes to so many aspects of the way that we live now to understand that we're being bombarded by dopamine in all aspects of our lives. And that what we really need to do is retrench and withdraw and limit dopamine in order to recapture the good life. Let me ask you a question. So it reminds me, I love talking just with with experts in in their field because you always see parallels, right? When I think about when I'm working with my, you know, clients in my role with healing, it's, it's often you know, you want them to have an appreciation for the body's capacity to heal, right? I love the word resiliency, right? And I'm thinking about some old books that I'm sure you've read, right? The brain that changes itself and neuroplasticity. And I, and I, to your point, I think I saw it in one of the talks that you did, which is, you know, you do want people to have an appreciation. You said the stigma that used to go with addiction, that people can never get better. People can never heal. As bad as the problem is, I, to me, when I talk with patients, I always want them to know there's, there's an incredible capacity to heal. And if we either do the right things and or stop doing some kind of things that are that are part of the problem you know stop hitting my ham hand with a hammer and taking an opioid let's let's get rid of the hammer and then work on getting off the opioids but when i i guess my 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 thought or question 
when you said a little bit earlier about the 24 hour, you know, tech fast or something. And I, I think the same as when we do food fast, it's amazing after 24 hours of just fasting and food, you realize, wow, I really miss my coffee or my snicker bar or whatever. It's amazing, <laughs> you know, or stress yeah. eating. You said something, you know, 24 hours isn't enough to break those pathways or rewild. What is there a number? I'm just curious. You know, if, if you, mm-hmm. if I was feeling addicted to my phone is two weeks, you know, you hear the old studies, 21 days to change a habit or 40 days. Is there, what's the latest and greatest kind of research in that world. Now, again, assuming this isn't combined with a, you know, a, a medication addiction and there's a lot to this, right. And, but just in simple terms, is there a number you throw around for breaking a tech habit? So what I've seen in my clinical work yeah. with very serious addictions is that four weeks is usually the minimum amount of time okay. to really reset and normalize uh, dopamine reward pathways. And I've seen that with different types of addictions, with different ages, with different people. Not everybody fits that profile. Younger people tend to be a little more resilient. Older people tend to take a little longer. It's also reinforced by some clinical studies, which have shown uh, that four weeks is about the amount of time as well as some brain imaging studies and I, showing. I love how you how you say because you know, this would be encouraging to me if I'm a, if I'm a, a listener, you know it's it's not just this is why I think you are are so important to the world right now in this conversation because we just see it as like I just gotta get rid of my phone okay and and or or the drug I'm on or whatever it is you know porn I don't know but when you reframe it a little bit and say we're just trying to normalize the dopamine. It's a, it's a different thing. It's like, don't just exercise to have a six pack, right? Exercise for the, you know, the risks of cardiovascular disease that go down or cancer risk. So I, 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 it reframes the conversation. It encourages me. It's not just, I can't have my darn phone. Cause you know, Dr. Anna said I can't right. And then I got to do it for four weeks. No, that's the person that leaves yeah. rehab and then goes in their first bender on their way home. Right. But what yeah. you're finding or what you're saying is helping a person see you're actually, your brain is healing. During this time, your neurotransmitters are reestablishing themselves to a a more of a natural, neutral state, which is far better for you in every area of your life, not just how you relate to your phone, but it will help your, you know, right? And is that a fair statement? That's right. And even more importantly, after the four week dopamine fast, you know, you may decide that you want to start using your drug of choice again, and that's perfectly okay, but you don't. But most of the time, people don't want to return to the way they were using it before. Because they like like, how they feel. They like the taste of carrots now, not, you know, gummy bears as much, right? That's right. And and also, you know, it's for most people, it's not practically feasible now to not have their phone. It's so integrated into our, our professional lives, our family lives. But what you can do once you've reset your reward pathways is think about, okay, what, you know, what barriers do I want to put in place now that I reintroduce it so that I can use in a different way so that I can have a different kind of attachment with my phone than I had before. And it's just much easier to do that after you healed your brain a little bit. Here's a question. So you talk about the four weeks and, and, and that being a minimum. Um, what I, I'm of the school of thought that kind of says you don't just end a habit, you replace it. And so during that, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but during that time, you know, you're, you're starving the addiction of sorts and sort of changing it. What do you kind of, I mean, what are just some basic things, again, for the average layperson out there that during that, say, four weeks or whatever, they can be doing to help sort of retrain the proper reward pathways? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> I because, uh, <laughs> because, you know, um, Charles Murray wrote a really wonderful book called The Power of Habit, and maybe you've read it. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. 
And he basically deconstructs that the way to change a habit is to replace it with um, another rewarding behavior. But I'm not sure about that because the truth is if you replace one high dopamine substance or behavior with another, you're very vulnerable to what's called cross-addiction, which is this idea that all addictive drugs and behavior work on the same common reward pathway. But are there things we can do to tolerate distress better? Sure. Mindfulness meditation works. Prayer works. Exercise works. Um, engagement in really absorbing mental activities, usually if they're kind of hard works. What I, what I ask people to do, it's, there are no, it's not an easy yeah. fix. It's, it's hard. It's yeah. the, you know, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I have a, some addiction. I mean, a lot of us do in my family, you know, from alcoholism, my sister that was a, was an addict and went through the different scenarios of, you know, inpatient and some good stuff and some, and some, some other stuff. But, you know, the, I always remember, and I've seen this and I'd be curious, doc, if you feel comfortable, you know, talking through this, it always breaks my heart. The person comes in, maybe we'll use a, a alcohol as a, you know, just a one to pick. And so now it's the guy that, or gal that quits drinking. They get put on three prescription drugs. They smoke now, right? So they're on their break. They're pounding down the cigarettes, you know, on their, on their meetings. I mean, that was the, the irony of drug rehab. I remember with my sister, I remember thinking, well, now all she does is smoke two packs a day and it takes prescription drugs, right? Like it wasn't, I, I just feel like we had just replaced one drug for another. Mm. And because it wasn't a street drug or a quote illegal drug and I, and I, you, I mean, I know you, you just shed some light on this. It's all the same pathway. It's right. It's all this, this dopamine pathway. And I, I think it's brilliant that we, that we, that we understand that so we can make some other choices, right? Whether it's like you said, exercising or reading a book or, 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 or even, and it's so powerful you, you started off this talk with your friends, uh, you know, in, in, in your residency, seeing a, a, a friend or a colleague lose a parent, right, or something, or a friend, and this, this reach for the pill. And now what you know through your, you know, your psychiatry work and the, the clinic that you run, and I think we've lost such an appreciation for just sitting in it. Like, there's healing in that, like it's not for naught, right? It's like one of the you know, one of the scriptures that says, you know, that the word will not return void. Like it, it's worth it, right? You're not just suffering for suffering's sake, and there's no benefit in it. I remember when you have kids and when they're cutting teeth, and I always remember thinking, like, why did why did God design like this? Seems like a bad design. Like why why cutting teeth? It's bad for everybody. But I think there's part of it that it's a child, and I don't know, maybe you know, but it's a it's a child's first experience with some real pain. Sometimes I think it's like a gentle introduction to some ouchiness. I don't know, but but it's but it's valuable in and of itself. It builds resiliency. You know, we can't live this life in a bubble of of fear. And, and, and seeking out dopamine hits constantly, whether it's through a phone or a cigarette or a, or a pharmaceutical. And I guess, would you, can you speak, because your world of psychiatry, a lot of people still associate that with, you know, Prozac Nation. I thought it was interesting. Is that why you chose the name Dopamine Nation? Because I remember Prozac Nation. Um, yeah, well, certainly, you know, there, that was an echo. Yeah. A an echo, yes. The people that feel like, hey, if I just go see you, the psychiatrist, get some drugs to get me through this, you know, that's not a great approach. Is that fair to say you would maybe want a broader, you know, a broader experience than that for them? Well, I, I would never want to say that it's not a good idea to go see a mental health care provider because mental illness is real yeah. and the brain is an organ like any other organ and can be diseased. 
And so consulting a mental health care professional, I think, can be the absolutely right thing. I would also say that I would never say that nobody should ever – I would never – I'm trying to do triple negatives. Let me simplify it. These medications that we use, whether to treat physical pain or mental pain, have a time and a place, and they can be absolutely life-saving. So this is – I would never say that nobody should – you know, um, that right. everybody should avoid these, these medications. However, yeah. But, yes, yeah. but we, we certainly are overusing them. Healthcare providers are over-prescribing them. Healthcare consumers are over-consuming them. And, you know, to your point, you know, that just sort of sit or, sitting with and tolerating pain is the work of resetting reward pathways that makes it possible to experience a moment of unmitigated and unsought for joy and elation over which you have no control, but you can be receptive and ready for it. Equally important, avoiding dopamine and suffering is also normal. So, you know, what, what has happened now is we have created this culture in which people really do believe that they are not ecstatically happy every single moment. Mm. There must be something wrong with them. And that is simply untrue. Life is very hard. We all suffer. We all experience sadness, anxiety, uh, trepidation, annoyance, depression, insomnia. I mean, it's a part of being human. And what can happen is if we tell people that it's pathological to experience those things, then the experience of suffering is compounded by the experience of feeling that they're alone in their suffering and that everybody else is running around in a field of butterflies when it's absolutely not true. You know, Mark Zuckerberg gets up every day, and let me tell you, he is as miserable as the rest of us. (laughs) Especially right now. I'm probably having some bad Right, and he he actually deserves it. No, I didn't just say that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right, yeah, bad example, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But but I think this is a really important message. Like, I'll never forget a patient of mine who struggled with really treatment-refractory depression. So he had tried every treatment under the sun. He wasn't any better. He was so miserable. And then we had this kind of discussion about, gosh, you know, life is painful and and being miserable to some extent is part of being alive and just enduring the miserableness of it. And it was like a light bulb went off to him. And you know what? From that day forward, he felt better. Mm. And that's okay. Like, I'm not a sunny disposition. You know, I'm not wired that way. And it's okay. When we, when when we've turned normal life experience into a diagnosable pathology, we've lost, we've lost something and we need to, we need to contend for that. We need to fight back against that. And I hope we're seeing, I hope we're seeing a a, a kickback. I hope we're seeing an awakening or, you know, whatever, an appreciation for that because it's a race to the bottom if we don't. Right. I mean, it's this runaway train of, even though I understand the desire to help, Doc, I don't know if you ever read the book by Philip uh, Yancey, I believe, but it was called The Gift of Pain. But yes, it's, yeah, right? It. Yeah, and I love that book. And it's, and it's this, you know, a lot of it's about leprosy and the, the loss of nerve ending feeling. And so they're, mm-hmm. it's just a reminder of the gift of pain. But I think we can put that in a broader, broader context other than just physical pain, right? Which is this, this there's a gift there because it causes, I think it was you even talking, anxiety 
is not always bad. It, it get right. The the fear I have of my child going out at midnight by themselves with a drunk friend is a is a righteous fear to have, right? I mean, there's <laughs> there's implications there. Or letting my ch- child have unfettered access to internet, knowing the risks associated with that, I should have trepidation about that. That's and right. it doesn't make me. It doesn't make us criminal. And and I think you know as we kind of land this plane, and we're so grateful. And I'm I'm really hoping that this conversation that you're bringing and others, I don't, you know, I know that there's a lot of people trying, it's hard to get sometimes the airtime and, you know, you're living, of course, a time where a message of, 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 you know, some people don't like this message, right? Whether it's, you know, sitting in, you know, sitting in your pain and getting rid of your technology doesn't sound like a good Saturday. (laughs) It's not a big seller, but, but the joy available to that, right. To be free from a dopamine addiction is, profound. And I, I, there's a great book. You've probably read it. I'm sure it's called hacking of the American brain, right? It's one of the, and it reminds, but he talks a lot about the pleasure centers of the brain. And we're so after those hits of dopamine that we lose joy, which you were talking about, right? This it's different. A a hit of dopamine is not joy. That's a, right. That's a, that's that stimulating thing. And so this world that's available to all of us really on the other side, often of pain, Right. And maybe that's not clinically correct. You live this world. But as kind of a final thought for our listeners, is there like a encouragement or do you you have a a final thought, you know, for these people that I think we are all struggling with a level of especially this covid time and separation. Right. And a lot of people have actually been driven more to technology during this time. Right. They they, six months ago, they didn't have an addiction. Now they have an addiction to CNN and, you know, and a news station. And they're 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 the ticker of cases of covid. Right. And it's uh, added with a bunch of fear. Right. Of people passing away and all these things. Like, what do you say to, you know, the dopamine nation right now, if you will? What do you say to us? Give us some hope as we sign off here today. Well, I mean, I think there's lots of hope. Just the simple fact that we're having this discussion is hopeful, you know, that that people um, do want to hear um, a a kind of a possibility of a new way of approaching life, um, a new way of thinking about things. It's actually an old way, but maybe going back to some lessons that we've forgotten. Dr. Lemke, I want to thank you for just being a part of this conversation and helping um, our audience. We will for sure put the link uh, to Dopamine Nation, but you said it doesn't come out until next year. Do you have a release date yet? Yes, August. So next August. Okay, so they have a, yes. they have a bit of a wait. Hey, how how would somebody follow you in the meantime? They they like what you're saying. They want to hear more. Uh, what are do you have? <laughs> I was about to say, do you have a social media? <laughs> you don't have that. Yeah, no, I really don't. No. Some great um, videos I've seen of yours. You know, a TEDx talk and write stuff, Doc. There's some stuff. Lots I know, of stuff out there. Some good interviews. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's right. I, I I try to do um, you know podcasts when I'm invited. It's sure. always a great opportunity. But I'm not really on social media. I honestly don't think I could handle it. Um, if you want to know the truth, like I would be really caught up in it in an instant. Yeah. yeah. So I can't really have it in my life. Um, and those, those are just, I mean, that's where I've set my boundary because I'm all too aware of my own. Sure. Sure. You did write another book, uh, as well. Right. Which again, drug dealer MD. Yeah. Timely. 
which yeah. who would have guessed it would end you know we're in a unique time right now of, yeah. of what's happening there so yeah. uh, i know and I, I would say there's a lot of similarities potentially just in understanding how we get to a certain place yeah. right the the powers behind i think you call them invisible forces sometimes or however you you know there yeah. is pressures that affect how our doctors behave right the pressures they're under that lead them to certain treatments or therapies or suggestions but i always want and i always try to do it with our patients while we have this podcast designed empowering people right giving them reminding them that ultimately that you know a lot of their destiny is under their control right and seeking out resources like you and others can be beneficial to that we're so thankful for your time today doc stay safe out there in california and the fires and uh, all of the stuff that's going on out there and uh, we look forward to reading your book if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe and if you want to support the show give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe to learn more about dr ben's work visit achievewellness.clinic 